This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, taking a modern look at classical song with Martha Guth and Erica Switzer. This is Sparks and Wiry Cries, and I am Martha Guth, your host. Erica Switzer will be back with us shortly for the next one, but I thank you so much for tuning in. While in London last October, I had the privilege of interviewing the very great Graham Johnson. He spoke for an hour, and I found it almost impossible to try and edit any of it down. So here it is uh, in its entirety. It is candid, at times enlightening, reverent, and sometimes surprising to hear his openness. He is always opinionated, but of course these opinions have come after years and years of microscopic study. His Songmaker's Almanac, the recital series he began in the 1970s, is the basis for what song programming is today. His playing at the piano is one that I immediately recognize, especially in Schubert. I had many questions written down to ask him, but it turns out I probably only asked him about four or five total. He was eloquent and incredibly generous with his time. We sat in his house, surrounded by his library, and he spoke about song, his life, and studies. So here then, without delay, is the extraordinary Graham Johnson. Uh, so I first just want to thank you so much for talking with me. I am so pleased that you agreed to do this. Delighted. I'd love to know if there was a moment in your early days when you understood that you wanted to devote your life to song. I grew up in Rhodesia in Africa, where there was very little vocal tradition. There was a piano playing tradition, there was a school of music, there was good piano teaching, but not good vocal teaching. In fact, anybody who sang was a bit of a mystery. There was a gentleman dentist who performed Ishuna Milovan. Um, not that I was ever invited, but I was aware that he regarded it strange work that I'd never heard of with a very special intensity. And there were the Philistines amongst the Rhodesians who actually regarded an invitation to hear his Schoenemiller as about the worst possible thing that could happen to them. But in any respect, no, the lead was not an important part of my life. I, I wanted to compose songs when I was still in Africa. I loved poetry and history and texts. I loved languages. I was taught French there very well in terms of the grammar and understanding the language, not so well in terms of speaking it. Always aspired to learn and speak German, which was only to come much later. No, I mean, in a way, the interesting thing about song is that it was there all the time waiting to happen in my life and all the building blocks that would eventually make me devote my life to it were slowly being put in place in terms of the literature and the background and the working with people and the school musicals even. I mean, that's where vocal, um, that's where vocal music got its highest form of, of um, interest for me. The pajama game, Guys and Dolls, The Boyfriend. There was a tradition in my high school of doing musicals. I both sang in them before my voice broke and then went into the music production side. And I do remember a performance of South Pacific, the film. I was only 13. It was a very famous film with Mitzi Gaynor and uh, Rosanna Brazzi with Giorgio Tozzi, the great bass, singing Some Enchanted Evening. And 
Yes, also Deborah Carr singing um, Making an Eye with Yul Brunner. And the idea that there was a way of expressing emotion through sung music, through the word and tone in conjunction, was something that was very, very vivid to me. I wasn't over aware of the literature of Lido or the fact that the piano took a very special part in this. But remember, I was learning and playing piano and getting scholarship to come to Britain eventually. So that was in place. All these various invisible building blocks leading somewhere, but not knowing exactly where. When I came to this country on a scholarship aged only 17, I sort of knew I'd got out of Africa and the most politically difficult country, Rhodesia, at a very sad point of existence. I avoided, no doubt, being called up into the army and being perhaps shot on the eastern border when there was a war with Mugabe. So all I can say is that I came to London very willingly as a piano student at 17, but sort of also aware that I wasn't going to be a solo pianist. I thought I was going to be a composer. And when I discovered the work of Benjamin Britten, who at that time was at his height, thanks to record libraries and easy availability of scores in this country. Of course, song formed a major part. It was the singing of Peter Pears, his, his mouthpiece in the world of music. And, and it never occurred to me that I wanted to play the piano for songs, more that I wanted to compose songs. I always thought of songs from a compositional point of view. When I looked at songs, why did the composer do this? Because I wanted to learn also how to compose songs. I suppose between the age of about 17 and 21, I saw myself as either a chamber music player doing wonderful sonatas for cello or violin, because I really loved that. I fell in love with the chamber music player. Or maybe a trio. That was also enormous fun, a piano trio. Um, and then somebody who'd heard me play violin or cello sonatas asked me to um, accompany them, which I thought was rather a strange request. I was approached by someone from the singing table, the singing world at the Royal Academy of Music, an incredibly strange group of people who sat around a large circular table and, and who were a source of terror for everybody else in the music school because of their sharp sallies of wit, their conversations that got down to uncomfortable basics very quickly, the rough-and-tumble world of singing. I'd avoided that as a chamber music player, and then I was drawn in. And then the final thing that happened to me is when I was in the middle of sort of studying with Benjamin Britten on a very infrequent basis. He saw my cello sonata, we discussed music. Somebody said, would you like to come and hear Interizer? Well, Schubert for me was the great unknown at the age of about 21, believe it or not. I mean, other kids seem to have grown up with Schubert. I did a violin sonatino at the age of 10 for the girl violinist, which was such a disaster in terms of ensemble that, in fact, what I couldn't make out about Schubert, he, he was neither Mozart nor Beethoven. He was neither fish nor fowl as far as I was concerned. He was in a middle world. He wasn't, you know, Beethoven, Sturman, Drang, or Mozartian delicacy, or Schumann romanticism. 
it was a strange creature and and when a child plays schubert the adults shake their heads and say no well you haven't quite got it and there's some imponderable about playing schubert the children are not very good at i don't think schubert is basically an ideal composer for children anyway schubert i played a very bad performance of the b flat major sonata um, at about the age of 18 or 19 for my solo piano studies i still didn't get it i didn't get the magic and that day in 1971 when i actually heard Winterizer with Peter Pears at his height, the Indian summer of his career. Actually, already in his early 60s, but singing better than he'd ever sung. And Benjamin Britten, who we didn't know at that stage, had very little time left to accompany before he had his operation and his stroke that put him out of commission as a pianist, absolutely at his height. The world stood still for that Winterizer and for me. It was a Damascene conversion. I came out after one and a half hours or one hour, ten minutes or whatever it is, a very different person from the person who went in, completely aghast at how extraordinarily wonderful the music was, how wonderful the singing was, how the accompaniment had played a role in the overall totality that I couldn't have dreamed. And I sort of realized that I could never be a composer like Benjamin Britten, but if I could spend my life attempting to get some of the colour and understanding in terms of his piano playing in the lead repertoire. It was a real conversion. I mean, from that day on, Schubert was at the top of my pantheon, and then I had to double back and learn a great deal. But it was the Winterheiser that was the coup de foudre. It was the the thing that woke me up, and an extraordinarily great performance. One of those performances where even people who had no idea that something magnificent had happened were actually on the edge of their seats because there was a palpable feeling in the hall of magic having been created, hanging in the air like a big special event that people didn't understand. That's the story, a late awakening, but better late than never. You've studied with so many well-known, just sort of icons, formidable figures of the song world. Worked with Britain, Spears, studied with Jeffrey Parsons and Gerald Moore. How did they shape your understanding of the repertoire? Well, I never studied piano accompaniment with Britain, I, um, I studied some of his own works right. with him, yeah. but um, he was very busy. He was a combination of being unbelievably busy and creative or indeed getting very unwell and making his slow decline um, towards his death um, in the last four tragic years of his life. Then, of course, I worked a great deal with Piers after that. Um, How do people, how do teachers actually shape pupils? It's a very interesting question. You see, there are some teachers who sit you down and give you chapter and verse, and you do this, you can't do this, you must do this, you shan't do this, etc. But I never had that with any of these people. 
was more like friendship. Um, certainly, I had some lessons from Geoffrey Parsons. He used to live round the corner of where we are now. I mean, when I moved in this very home in 1972, he was at the height of his fame, living perhaps a six or seven minute walk around the corner from here. His friend Eric Vatier was a singing teacher and was just starting his studio. I used to go there and receive a 10 shilling piece, which was 50p. A newly minted 50p, we'd just gone decimal in Britain, uh, for an hour's work. That's the sort of, that's how long ago it was. And downstairs there would be Geoffrey working with Teresa Baganza or Hermann Pry or Elizabeth Schwarzkopf or all these really formidable Rita Steich, these formidable singers of that epoch. But you know, Geoffrey was very companionable. He was um, very busy, um, very different personality from me. I don't think we were ever destined to see in many respects eye to eye, but we shared a, an enthusiasm. I played Schubert duets with him on a number of occasions. And when I began Song Maker's Almanac, he was extremely generous as a patron and helping and, and um, even playing concerts for me when I was not here. Uh, very, very kind in those early years, particularly. Gerald, I met after Geoffrey, although he was much older. I mean, Geoffrey was born 1929. So I got to know him. Um, I suppose I got to know um, Geoffrey in his 40s. But I only got to know Gerald born 1899 in his 70s, and he was about 76 or 7. Very, very remarkable person. And again, there was no formal tuition. It was coming to concerts, speaking to me afterwards, writing me a letter about certain things, chatting. And you know what a lot of people need in the business is not so much instruction, but admission into the club. Just the feeling that you have a right to be a member of a club, if it's only a junior member. You're in there, and yes, after those unsteady beginnings of saying Mr. Mr. being invited, not presuming to do it without invitation, but eventually being invited to say the first name. And then, yeah, the feeling of being taken under the wing. Um... Gerald once said to me, if you ever write your autobiography, what would your title be? I said, well, you, your, your very famous book is called Am I Too Loud? And I suppose my title should be Am I Too Allowed? Because that's the feeling that young people have. Am I too allowed as well to come into this extraordinary world where there is a sense of elite people and, and they never they never let, made you feel as if you had to ask or... you know i everybody's got histories with people in personal relationships i sadly fell out with jeffrey later on because of very complicated issues involving artists when i was grown up enough to be playing for more important people um no, I never had a moment's difficulty with Gerald. He used to pick me up at um, Beaconsfield Station. I used to go up and we used to spend whole days together. And 
He just loved reminiscing with somebody young who really knew all these people who bought. I mean, I collected 78 gramophone records in the 70s. So I knew all about the people he'd worked with. And we'd talk about all his old friends and enemies, particularly Monstre Sacré, like Walter Legg, greatest recording um, producer of his time and Schwarzkopf's husband. And I'd had experience in working with Legg, having accompanied Schwarzkopf, you know, and, and I was in my middle 20s. And... Gerald loved hearing about these things. And then, of course, I organized his 18th birthday concert at Wigmore Hall. Um, and uh, it was broadcast. And I inherited his piano and papers and music. And it was a, yeah, I, I reckon it was an emotional bond. It was much more an emotional bond than any type of formal teaching bond. Um, I do remember once when I was playing for a Japanese singer that Gerald had recommended to take me as an accompanist. I misjudged. I mean, young players often misjudge how much weight and presence is needed, and they become very inward-looking and rather quiet. And he came back in the interval and said, Oh, are you playing tonight? We haven't heard you yet. No, I mean, he could be... That's about as near as he got to being abrasive. But, um, no, I mean, it's like also my friendship with Pierre Banach and becoming close friends with him and that link with Poonak. Um, greatest thing about these older people, the greatest compliment that you can pay to these older people who are moving away from their period of influence and full function is a complete awareness of what they've done and what they've contributed because there are many, many, many young artists then and now who are not particularly good at saluting the past as a totality with the present. It's who's doing what now. And what I think an older artist looks for is not slavish admiration. It's not unbelievably um, sort of complimentary things said all the time. It's not necessarily praise, but an awareness of what you've actually done, an awareness of who you've played for. And, and, you know, I mean, when I got to know Britain, I knew practically every note that he'd ever written by heart, it just you know, the entire operas I could sing. And in a way, you don't have to do that, but older people sort of know you may be callow, your judgment may not be that great, but you are, you've gone out and worked and studied and know. And um, I think that's a special talent. Some young people are better made to revere older people than others. I don't know why that should be. I've often got a theory that if you have a bad relationship with your father or somebody authoritarian like that, you tend to want to throw off the influence of father figures. But I have been incredibly lucky with Gerald Moore, with Peter Pierce, with Eric Sams, who shaped my entire life as a writer, that these people, older people, um, 
have in a sense taken an interest in me. And you know why? Because I took a big interest in them. I think that is, that's one of the things. You gave them the respect that they truly deserve. Well, also the, the knowledge of having not just looked them up online and no. read a quick Wikipedia, which in those days didn't exist anyway. To really know. To really know. And people can actually tell the difference between, oh, yeah, the IO, you were great, you did great things, and a detailed, in-depth knowledge of a person's achievements. You know. By the time I met Gerald Moore, I'd heard every single one of his great Schubert recordings with Fischer Discard. I mean, I knew his sound, I could identify his playing. I, you know, and he had the most enchanting, wonderful wife. It was a most wonderful relationship with Enid. She was also very much a part of. Of, um, she liked me too, and that's why it worked. The tragedy of Gerald was that, um, as you know, or may have forgotten, he grew up in Canada. He was born in England, grew up in Canada, and fairly early on returned to England. But I think he had a wife of Canadian extraction. He married quite early on in his 20s, and she, the marriage was a disaster, and they divorced, or at least they parted, but she wouldn't give him a divorce because she was very Catholic. So in a sense, the love of his life, Enid, he was never able to marry because in those days there were no automatic rules about divorce. He had to continue to pay alimony, First wife never remarried. And when you are living with a, a woman out of wedlock, and would you believe he told me that in the 1940s people attempted to blackmail him on that basis because he was living with someone, with a woman out of wedlock? Was he keeping it a secret? Well, you didn't talk no. about it in those days. I mean, obviously, friends knew, but it was a shame. It yes. was a shame. And... But what I'm trying to say is yeah. that you didn't bring children into the world. That's the one thing you didn't do in those days, was to have children. So there you are. They eventually married when the law became that, you know, anybody could divorce after a number of years. They married in the 50s, at which time Enid herself was far too old to have a family. So that's the story. And I think that some people can choose their children or their grandchildren, or whatever. And they absolutely unaccountably, I don't know why, I was extremely lucky, they, they opted for me. Um, he believed in me. And uh, it was a terrible shock when he, when Enid rang me up and said, I'm sorry to tell you that when I took Gerald's tea up to him this afternoon, he died in his sleep. This was in 1987. And wonderful. I mean, he never had a day's illness. He just suddenly went. Good lunch. Afternoon snooze and died in his sleep. The best way anybody could ask. Yeah. 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 His life was a very fortunate one. He had a lot of luck. He was terribly, terribly good with people and he played very well. His great luck was that he was at his height at the end of the war, 
when German pianists, his great German rival, Michael Raffheisen, um, was no longer able to function completely internationally on a career level because of um, political affiliations during the war. Um, and the most valuable thing for any German singer on a concert platform in America and the United States, Canada, anywhere, was to have English collaborator. Hmm. And remember, the center of the recording industry was also here in England, EMI. Records were made here. Gerald was local. I don't expect anybody else will ever adopt that position of unquestionably the world's greatest accompanist again, because he really, in a sense, cornered the market in a way with the number of artists and the amount of fame and the number of records that no one in his epoch could come anywhere near him. And also, it has to be said, Martha, that in those days, solo pianists would sooner die than see be accompanying songs. You feel that that is changed now? Certainly. I do, yeah. Oh, it's an addendum. I mean, very seldom do these famous pianists have the chance of actually working the recital circuit, although that does happen sometimes when there's a record to sell as part of the promotional deal. But it's not organic. And there have been some quite miserable collaborations that have been created in... Um, in record companies. And there is, yeah, I do believe a feeling that I don't know why the specialism of accompaniment is not better understood. After all, the specialism of being a criminal versus a divorce lawyer is understood, or an orthopedic surgeon or a brain surgeon is understood within the discipline of medicine. You know, but there is this feeling that I just think that What's interesting about accompanying is that our whole training, our whole way of life is to potentiate the singer's full possibilities. That the singer will perhaps sing better with us than otherwise. And it's that something or other that separates the accompanist from the occasional accompanist who just puts their toe in the water for very important singers or for very important records or for very important Different than if you were you had gone into chamber music you know, as a trio. Yes, there is. Yeah. A, well, there are certain technical differences in terms of chamber music sure. and 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 accompanying. For example, the accompanist must always be a microsecond later on the beat because of the consonants to which the words attach. Very often, solo pianists say to singers, "You're dragging. We're not on the beat." And the answer is that they are not allowing the words to be said. They're not thinking text. And it's that, and variations on that, that lie at the center of an accompanist's, a career accompanist's ability to, to create the special world and atmosphere where tone and word unite in a happy series of circumstances together on the singer's breath and in the phonation, allowing the time. And um, yeah, I was at a competition recently and I heard a most brilliant young man play the piano. Indeed, he can play anything by memory and played an accompaniment by memory. I would bet you that he couldn't have recited the poem by memory, but he knew the music by memory. 
And the thing that the music is there as a common ground for the singer to be saying those words to the public as the accompanist sees them, feels them, reads them, interprets them, and lives them syllable by syllable as he sits at the keyboard. That's not possible if you just get the broad sweep and you play the piano part. The effect, by the way, is of a singer being drawn through a hedge by the hair backwards as the pianist goes on their long, unperturbed route of playing everything in time and the poor person running behind and trying to keep up with the star who's playing without music. It just puts the boot on the other foot. It's not a very successful way of doing it. But... I don't know. I mean, there was a girl once at a music school who said to me, I'm, you know, I, when I do my recital, I'm getting the best pianist in the piano department to do my recital. I'm not just getting anybody from the accompanying department. And I said, you know, I know how you feel. I've got a very bad knee operation coming up, but I don't want a, an orthopedic surgeon to do it. It's not very chic. I'm going to get a great brain surgeon to do it because it will be infinitely more glamorous for me to have my knee operated on by a brain surgeon. Because basically, just think how more distinguished it is to have somebody, you know, poor orthopedic surgeon, you know, he's a bit of a hack. And she didn't get the irony of that at all. And I felt to myself, dear, you'll need an accompanist to push you through your recital because no pianist that you think you're going to get is going to help you sufficiently. Completely different skill. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, this is not to say that there aren't some solo pianists who have worked very hard at it and established relationships and partnerships. This is not a blanket term of um, opprobrium for solo pianists who play leader. No, some but they, them, they understand that they are doing something yeah, some do it. some do it well and some do it quite badly. It's just a question of how, how much practice you have with these songs. Uh, you know, when you get to my age, and you do recitals, there's hardly a song that you're playing for the first time on a disc. You bring a collected experience of years, whether it's a Bob song or Schubert song, it's something known and seasoned. And, and many of the career accompanists are people who've patiently sat in studios with heard singing teachers, who've had their ears educated about what's good and what isn't. And here, I'll give you an instance. I asked Victoria de Los Angeles, whom I accompanied in 1976, 7 and 8, why she liked Gerald Moore so much. And she said, in her wonderful, quaint Spanish accent, well, she said, I get very nervous. And sometimes when I get nervous, I go into myself and I sing too softly. And Gerald, when I sang too softly, he played louder and louder. Come on, Victoria, you can do better. I know your voice. Come on, sing, girl, as it were. And that's precisely where you need a lifetime experience. The accompanist, to a certain extent, has to hear what he wants from a singer before he can get it. There's got to be a mental picture of how he wants to hear things. And he need never share that with the singer, but he plays in a way that facilitates that sound. Can you imagine most inexperienced people would play softer and softer, she got softer and softer, and they would disappear into the fundament. But as it was, no, he says, now, come on, Victoria, let's get singing here. But how much experience does it take to know what singing really is when a singer begins to engage 
You've got to know her real voice. You've got to have heard her at her best. You have got to, to a certain extent, understand the mechanism of how fright can influence singers. It's called giving a singer support. And Gerald was marvelous at that. Marvelous. So, yeah, it's that intuition, in fact, is years of study. Well, can I put the boot on the other foot and ask you, can you tell immediately when somebody sits at the piano to play for you whether they're experienced or not? Of course. And I'm not even, I mean, I'm sort of at the beginning or in the beginning, my middle stage of a career. Yeah, of course. Almost within a few bars. Yeah. It's how it goes, how it sounds, how it flows, everything. Mm -hmm. Pianists, solo pianists have got often marvelous fantasy and imagination. My God, I mean, you know, you know, some of the people who get to be invited to accompany singers are only invited to do so because they've proved how magnificent they are as pianists. So let's say that straight away. Conductors as uh, pianists is another matter. I mean, how great Savalish was as an accompanist, one could discuss, or indeed um, Furtwängler when he, or indeed Bruno Walter when he played a lot of wrong notes. Gerard described to me how going to the festival hall to hear Ferrier accompanied by Walter, who really, great musical man though he was, was not really in full possession of the ability to play complicated songs like Brahms's on Ewiger Lieber. They said it was particularly bitter when somebody says, well, more it must be a humbling experience for you to come here and see how the music should really sound. Because despite Walter's mistakes on that evening, people don't hear the specifics, they hear the celebrity. That's the celebrity, that must be great. Now, what I'm trying to say is that actually many of these singers, many of these solo pianists are marvellously um, imaginative. But it is an incredibly different thing where you've got to factor in a singer's technical abilities and sound and the specific demands of a text. There's no specific demand of a text in a great Brahms piano concerto. There's a great deal that's poetic about it in a generalized way. But we are talking detail here, sometimes that concerns consonants and accentuations and underlinings and, well, you're a wonderful song singer, you know exactly about all the subtleties. And it certainly helps if there's a pianist with you who, as it were, understands those without you having to take him by the hand and explain. I want to ask you about sort of another side of what you do, and that's programming. And I'm wondering if your desire to be a composer has influenced your the way that you put recitals together. Certainly. The best compliment I ever had in my life on any level was from the remarkable Madeleine Mio, who came to a recital I did of Poulenc. The wonderful evening that, it was 1979, when in fact Danak organized a concert in Paris, all of Poulenc, it was going to be Jennifer Smith, who's a wonderful colleague of mine. She fell ill, Felicity Lott took over, so Felicity Lott and Richard Jackson sang it in the Théâtre Ranelag. And afterwards, we went back Bernac's book had just been published. Henri L., Suzanne Peignot, who did the first Air Chanté, Genevieve Touraine, who did the first Fiancé pour Rieux, Yvonne Gouvernet, who conducted all the first performances of Poulenc's choral music, um, Poulenc's niece Rosine Sarange, Winifred Radford, who was the great Poulenc representative here in this country and friend of Bernac, um, Madeleine Mio, the widow of Darius. She said to me, Je n'homme, vous jouez comme un compositeur. 
And that is the greatest compliment I've ever had. Because yes, you do have to play the texts and that Britain was like as a composer, as if you yourself had created them, as if you were advocating that dramaturgical side of their significance, which is not, but needs actually that advocacy of feeling, this is how I would have done it. So you put yourself in the hot seat. Remember all the great composers, Schubert, Brahms, Wolf, Poulain, Britain, Debussy, were all wonderful pianists, not for their own solo pianists, but almost always for their songs. Forêt accompanied his songs all the time. So we are plenipotentiaries. We put ourselves in the hot seat. In a type of transubstantiation, we have to become like them. We have to actually put ourselves in that mindset as if we ourselves had created. It's a type of role play. It's a thing. Also very important in terms of my putting together programs is that before I was allowed to play the piano and study the piano, I was an actor. I was quite a well-known and reasonably respected child actor. And my father brought it to an end because he didn't want me to carry on with it. And I was given piano lessons as a type of alternative. But actually the theatre, I could very easily have been a producer or a director. It makes absolute sense. I mean, the, the now you know makers, me, would you agree that? Absolutely. It makes total sense with the song makers and the way you put programs together. Like no other. There is a sense of me being on stage, talking on stage before I could play a note of the piano. So most people can't say that because playing an instrument is early, but I was on stage getting applause, not for music, but for speaking in shows, in parts, child actors' parts. I mean, within the very narrow provincial remit of where I came from, I'm not saying that I was a great child actor by British standards, because as you know, I come from Africa. But in a sort of a sense, theatrical flair in terms of knowing how something works doesn't always happen to even great composers. I mean, Schubert, unlike Mozart, never had that feeling for how to make a libretto work in his operas. Mozart was the one who understood how to bully librettists and make people provide something exactly so it worked. Britain, exactly the same. He would be a master of his librettist Strauss, exactly the same. All that conversation between him and Hofmannsthal and those sort of things, it's so... Please write me what I need so I can make this thing work as a piece of drama. And the song recital, you see, is, in many respects, a dramatic event. It's got all sorts of undertones and overtones that people don't understand. For example, the humanity of the person giving the concert, the feeling of, would I want to have dinner with this person? Would I want to? Also, it doesn't hurt to be attractive. People are dazzled by beauty, male or female, or, and it doesn't mean to say that you have to be dazzling because there are dazzling people who are not obviously beautiful, but they've got to have what the Germans call an Ausstrahlung, some sort of communicative thing that's magnetic. But apart from that, how one song succeeds another builds up like a succession of mosaic chips, carefully put, or like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. Or taking a jewel and saying, this diamond would look very beautiful in this silver setting, but I could also imagine it in a gold setting. Or I could also imagine it together with other jewels in a pendant. And 
What you have with the song repertoire is each song is a jewel that can be set or reset in context in whatever way you want to do it. And that is what program planning is about. It is taking these chips, these mosaic fragments, hated, by the way, by all non-experts of song, because there are too many of them with too many German titles and French titles and too many subtexts, and everybody's terrified because basically, you know, in a symphony, it's symphony, symphony, over to your symphony. You can do your program planning on the back of an envelope pretty quickly. When it comes to songs, it's mosaic time and it's detailed, fine tuning. And there are 24 things, each with a story, each with a key, each with a mood, each with a tempo. I suppose, actually, my desire to put these things together is what first drew the attention of Gerald Moore because he hadn't done that himself. He was more like Jeffrey Parsons, who said to me, Graham, I don't know why you should bother with this. Listen, he said, what accompanists do is they wait at the phone and they pick up the phone and they take a piece of paper and they take the songs down that the singer tells them on the other end of the phone. And then, you know, that's our life. Right. You start with Antifernigalipto, da, 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 you know, and so on. And all of a sudden, I wanted to do something different. Yeah. Well, you've done the other. You have done that a little bit in Oh, sure. sure. Yeah. All the time. I mean, numbers, and in a way, it's a relief. Yeah. And actually, in a way, I must say that singers like my beloved Felicity Lott have also actually, yes, she did my programs, and sometimes I did programs for her, but many is the time I've done her programs. Yeah. She creates them. I mean, look, I mean, it's sort of like you do a program, I do a program. Will you do me a program, or do you like this program? I mean, it's not a question of a dictatorial thing. When I had my series with seven concerts per season of Songmaker's Almanac, it was my responsibility not only to do the program, photograph the music, to find the music, to buy the music. I mean, you know, I've got perhaps the biggest library I know of of song in private hands. I mean, thousands and thousands of songs in this very house. I would believe that. In a way, can I say, I, I bought so many more than I actually ever used. But it was just a question of having them here and at availability. And then you photocopy them and you send them out and the singer gets the program and they do it. And they got used to that with some makers on that because, in fact, you know, many of them were in the middle of very, very busy careers. It wasn't a democratic thing. You see, getting together and making a program by a democratic discussion, in my opinion, doesn't always work. It's your program or my program. But never underestimate that allowing a person to have a conception and a flair, if they've got it in them to do it, it's actually quite useful. Anyway, I could really, really do a course somewhere about program building because it actually is, I now realize I've always done it so automatically that I realize it's rather more complicated in terms of all sorts of things like tonalities and poem interaction and whether or not chronology or thematic. Now I'm seeing quite a lot of programs put together because the idea is we do it on theme. But it's not a question of the theme. It's how well it's done within the theme. And quite often there are all sorts of clunking mistakes, like too many slow songs or too many songs in the same key. Or if you've got a shared concert, one of the artists sitting out for three or four songs rather than keeping the thing evenly shared between the participating artists. So, you know, it's... It's a tough one, but um, the song recital is, I don't know, it's its changed. I've seen it changed, and I have to honestly Well, you've say, initiated the change, I think. 
right? Well, yeah, I think it's yeah. probably so. That, in fact, the idea of the accompanist being a powerhouse of suggestion mm. is new. It was not the case that an accompanist must have a series, that he must do a series, that he must plan things as a means of um, getting on. Right. So I have a question uh, fairly specifically about that. When you, you have a, a reverence for song, of course, but then there are moments where you will divide up a piece between different singers. There are things like that. I mean, is there a limit to what you think should be done and what shouldn't be done? And how do you decide what that is? Sharing and narrating songs is not so much a problem, in my opinion. The, the problem is, how can I put it? When a great song begins, a song by a great master like Schubert Schumann Wolf, no matter how busy the context is, it's got to be an oasis of calm. I do not go for the old singing, dancing winterizer. I do not go for dance to winterize. In a sense, it profoundly is against what I believe the lead to be. I don't believe the lead needs projections at the back of it, in my opinion. I don't. I believe there's only amount of information. I don't believe that it needs staging. I don't believe that the Italian leader book seems greater if people are in balconies or in costume. I don't, because the musical detail in that work is so profoundly complex that it can't be taken in if it is turned into an operatic aria. But certainly in your programs, there is movement. There is sort of the idea of, of creating relationships. Sometimes. You know, it depends on the work and it depends on the piece. And this is right. where each individual choice has to happen. Um, yeah, there are fun things that you can do occasionally. But what I would never do at any one moment of a song, whether, you know, like in the Venice program that we're working on at the moment, the Schubert song, the Schumann songs, they all are seriously done no matter what is surrounding them. It's a bit like I don't have lighting changes or costume or scenery or anything. At that moment, the singer stands still and sings the song in the piano accompaniment. That's what I think is important. I don't think really of song as opera. Mm. I think that the brain, the human brain, can only take in a certain amount of information at any one time. And with the delicacy of accompanimental detail and with what's happening in the vocal line, for example, a staged Italian songbook, it all gets lost because you've got to have the microscope on what's happening between voice and piano. And both didn't mean it to be lost in the mishmash of a background thing to people cavorting, running, going under the piano, making love or whatever. There is an integrity. And all right, you know, actually the Venice program we're doing at the moment is slightly exceptional because I have used opera arias and there is more business than usual. But for the big, important set pieces, we stand still and do them. And that's what I think is important. And you break rules, you make rules. You, it depends Always. entirely on the context. And just like anything else in any production, it's the taste of the producer, the designer, the director that will actually say this far and no further. See, I, I actually think there's a fine line between an evening where you have letters read and songs read somebody coming to the piano and um, this interaction between word and music and between the other option of dressing people up in costumes, in characters, making a play, in a sense turning leader into, well, 
everybody's got their different dividing lines. I've done a play about Clara Schumann at the end of her life, visited by her eldest daughter, and it's got a lot of speaking all taken from the letters, a lot of imaginative reconstruction. I'll tell you what I think. When the piano is banished from the side of the stage so that the ballet can happen like happened in the Winterreise I mentioned, or like the action can take place or the scenery can be moved or the people with their costumes can do their play and the piano is not right at the center of the action as an equal partner, but somehow relegated to the pit, metaphorically. That's when I object, because that is the difference between opera and leader. It's the particularity of the piano writing and its detail that is so much more finely tuned in the song world than in the opera world. Painting an opera is a very broad brush, brush with words. It's not the same. Even the greatest operas, and the composers knew that, anyway. I think I have uh, one more question that I'd really like, uh, like to know about. Um, I read in a recent interview that you gave that you said, if I could start recording, all, seeing all of your recordings again today, I would gladly try and have another chance. If I could scrap what I'd written and begin again, I would gladly do so. And I wonder if that's a product of being someone who always works in the temporal year of music making that just nothing's ever going to be perfect everything's a sepia photograph of the past um you know i used to idolize buying records i mean i've, I've had three major phases of collecting in my life when i first discovered the lead the first thing i collected was records thousands of lps way beyond what i could afford thousands of 78s when they were still collector's items in the 70s and you could buy them and I knew what everybody had done and how everybody had done it and where they'd done it and their tempi and different aspects of it. Then I actually got into printed music. And the last phase, in a way, the most wonderful for me is collecting all the poetry editions of, of, that the composers used. The first thing that fell away for me was the recordings because as soon as I began to make records and knew how strangely evanescent they were, they were... Only that day's work. I mean, it's like bad hair day, good hair day. If someone takes an actual snap of you and you've got a bad hair day, you don't say, oh, my God. You say, hmm, well, you know, the next day I look better or the day before I look better. Recording is not definitive, not at all. You can't actually take anybody's recording as definitive. A song like Nacht und Träumer will never, ever, ever in the world achieve a performance that is as great as it is. It will always be an attempt at perfection, some getting there nearer than others, but nobody actually getting there in my opinion. As soon as we realize that there's nothing finite, that nobody's ever going to do definitive and nobody's ever going to get it completely right, the sooner we actually veer away from having a sort of a sense of, um, how can I put it, playing a part in some sort of a type of eternal contribution. It's always, let's try it again. It's like a photo shoot. That photo didn't work, we can always try another one. And yeah, songs are like that. They are always challenging us to rethink, replay. I'm always thinking new things about, you know, this Venice program. I, I, I've changed my mind on some things from when we did it last at the Wigmore Hall. So tempt me certain aspects. I mean, you know, it, it isn't just automatically the same. And when I wrote all those commentaries for the Schubert issues and then have turned them into a big book, 
how simple it would have been to take all those commentaries from Hyperion, which had been very well received, and just put them in a book. No, I spent eight years rewriting them all because it was too important for me and the project was too important simply to reprint what I'd done at the age of 38. I started writing about Schubert at the age of 38 and I'm now 63. I, I can't actually have anything to do with what I wrote when I was 38. I mean, some of it's okay. Some of it seems to me wrong. Some of it seems to be it could be better expressed. And occasionally I'm surprised that back then I did understand it. But when it actually comes to it, it's a non-stop, ever-changing, ever-demanding life, this. It's like holding a moonbeam in your hand, quote the Mother Superior from The Sound of Music. You can't actually do it. It's like there will always be new people, there will always be new ideas. That's what's great about the repertoire. It's always going to be there to be re-looked at, and we will look at it at ourselves and do more than one version. Um, there's nothing definitive, and I used to think, you know, Fischer Disca was definitive, or this person was definitive, or that Britain's Tempe or Wonderful were definitive, and now I find myself more and more thinking bigger and bigger question marks about all of it. My own work, other people's work, it's never going to be good enough. It's a form and a life and an art form is bigger than any one of us. There's nobody who is as great as any one of the greatest songs in the repertoire. There's nobody who is entirely worthy, who's got it, who's on top of it, who's really summed it up and done it. Nobody. It remains forever elusive, remains forever beyond us. It remains a spiritual and emotional challenge. And the reason why so many people are fascinated by it is that no matter how many times they might have heard somebody else record it, they will notice when they begin to record it or play it, that however much they admire what they've heard, new things come up because they are new, because people are new, because people are differently made. There's, it's the spark of humanity and life in each one of us that makes us new and unique, that has the capacity to endlessly for us and for everyone else to reinvent the leader repertoire. I don't know that anything else can be said after that. Thank you so much. Thank you.